0: Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? This young man who runs up to Jesus, kneels down before him and asks him this question is echoing the question of every heart present in this church today. Because every single one of our hearts has beneath all of these surface level desires this one overarching desire for more. Because right? we have so many different desires swirling around. We want something this week, this month, this year. We have goals and desires for our lifetime. But underneath all of that, undergirding it, is this sneaking suspicion that maybe all of that won't fulfill us. Because we have this recognition that nothing up to this point truly has. Our lives here are wonderful we thank god for them the fact that we have breath in our lungs and blood in our veins the fact that we are able to gather together and worship today and yet in these lives there's a certain tenuousness to them that doesn't sit well with us right because even though i can expect you know reasonably healthy maybe i'll live 50 more years maybe more maybe less i could be in perfect health and get in an accident I know not the day nor the hour. I know that I have this life, but I don't know for how long. And yet this stubborn, persistent desire in my heart is to have a life that is both more perfect and more enduring. And so whether we recognize it or not, every single one of us came into this church exactly as this man who ran up to God. In this church, we will kneel down before Jesus just as he did, and our hearts are begging that question. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus answered him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. And here we can almost see the twinkle in Jesus' eyes when he recognizes in this disciple, when he recognizes in him the beginnings of faith, When he recognizes, wait, you see in me more than just some guru walking around in sandals giving life advice. You recognize in me more than just a teacher. No, you recognize that I share in the very goodness of the Father and that I am an encounter with God himself. And there, too, we have a connection with this young man. Because all of us came here today Not to a community center, not to just kind of stare at each other and try to solve each other's problems. We came here today to have an encounter with the living God who is here with us. And we came here with that same question burning in our hearts that this man had on his lips. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus continues, and he says, You know the commandments. You shall not kill, commit adultery, steal, bear false witness, defraud, shall honor your father and your mother. And here we realize Jesus meets him at his level. He's been checking the boxes. He's been following the rules. And you know what? That's another point of contact we might have with him. Our Christian faith might be just that just a set of rules and regulations that we have to follow, and we might have reached the breaking point. We might have reached that point a long time ago when we realized, I'm not living up, and I'm striving, and I'm trying, and I feel like a failure. And some of my friends, co-workers, brothers, sisters, family members, they're not even trying, and they seem to be doing better. right? They seem to have more peace about them. They seem to, uh, you know, just not be as frazzled as I am all the time. We might be on that end of the spectrum of just seeing the rules and regulations without the relationship that's meant to undergird them. We might see them as just an arbitrary list rather than ways to stay in communion with the God who loves us. But we might be on the other end. We might say, yeah, I've done all that. Just as this man said. Teacher, all of these I have observed from my youth. You know, I say, yes, I'm doing it, but still there's this sense of Mm. I want something more. And what's beautiful is that Jesus responds to our desire for more. He is always responding to our desire for more. And so Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you are lacking in one thing. And here we have the exact dynamic that Jesus follows with us today. First, Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him. First, he looks. And that is so profoundly important for us because one of the most torturous things about our lives is that we feel unnoticed, neglected, abandoned. We feel that we put forth so much effort that nobody sees. We might have been just mulling over something for for weeks and months and then we did it and how we failed. And people just see that one moment, they don't see the weeks of preparation that led to it. We might have building resentment with people in our lives because they don't notice the little cues we're trying to drop to say, hey, ask me how I'm doing because I'm not doing so great. And yet with Jesus, He looks, He sees, He knows that struggle that we think no one else picks up on, Jesus sees it. Jesus actually acknowledges all of the effort, every single little thought and desire, all of the internal wrestling matches that we have. He witnesses those. He looks, he sees, he knows. And then what's incredible is he loves. Because we think that if somebody were to look at me too closely, they wouldn't possibly be able to love me. If they were to see all of me, they would see that there's just so many unlovable aspects that they would run in the other direction. And yet Jesus, when he looks more deeply, loves even more dearly. And that's the most beautiful thing. That that sets up the context for the way that he speaks to this man and the way that he speaks to us. Because his love is not the love of maybe a senile grandpa who doesn't know what's going on, just says, yeah, do whatever you want. No, no, no. His love is the love of a father who calls his children to greatness. And so it's a tender love, but it's a demanding love as well. So Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, you are lacking in one thing. Go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then, come follow me. And it's at that point when we hear those words that most of us, a switch goes off in our brain and we say, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 that part's not for me. That's for people who have a lot of stuff. I don't have a lot of stuff. This is the gospel meant for Jeff Bezos, not for me, because Jesus knows I'm on this side of the socioeconomic spectrum, not on that side, right? I'm below whatever magic line at which uh, I'm acceptable in the kingdom of heaven. Right? That's not what the text says, but that's often how we look at it. As if the distinction here is between rich and poor. No, the distinction is between those who cling to this world's goods and those who use all that they have for the sake of heaven. It's not about how much you have. It's about the relationship you have with your possessions. And possessions here is, broadly speaking, not just physical material stuff, not just zeros in the bank account, not just uh, the size of your house or the position of prestige at your job. No, this includes your gifts, your talents, your energy, your time, your relationships. Every single one of those things the Lord says, give it to me. Now, when he says give it to me, oftentimes we're reluctant. It's, it's like when uh, Every now and then, dogs, when you're trying to play fetch with them, they won't give you the stick because they're like, you're not going to give back. No, this is my stick. Well, that's how we are very often with our possessions. We are so terrified that God is a God who takes rather than a God who gives. We forget that he is the Lord, the giver of life. We think he is the taker of all good things. And so we hold him at an arm's length. We say, okay, I'll I'll give you an hour on Sunday. I'll give you maybe a little bit of time each day in prayer. But I'm not going to give you access to everything. But that's what he wants. Right? For some, he calls them to the radical choice of literally selling everything. We call them Franciscans and certain other mendicant orders. For us, that's not the way. For us, instead, he says, give me access to everything. Treat every single thing that you have and every aspect of who you are as primarily the Lord's, secondarily yours. And that seems like a tall task, but it's one of the most freeing experiences imaginable. Because at that point, we can drop down our guard a little bit. Because when all that I am and all that I have is mine, I have to guard it. I have to protect it. First of all, all that I am, I have to make sure people know. Do you know who I am? you got to respect me. you got to think uh, a certain level about me. And then, all that I have. But well, what if you try to take it away? No, you're a threat. i got to keep a little distance between me and you. And it's this isolating experience. Whereas if all that I am and all that I have is the Lord's, then I can live in freedom and joy. I can realize that if I have a lot or if I have a little, that's on Him. Like, yeah, I strive to do my best to pursue excellence in my career and all the rest, but I'm not a nervous wreck about it. I can realize that breath was absolutely free, right? That was a pure gift from the Lord. And I can realize that about everything that I have and everything that I am, and I can live in the joy of knowing that God is providing, that he is giving me all that I have, whether it's a lot or a little. It's a free gift. Even all the energy and all the time and all of the effort that I have put into earning my paycheck, all of that God gave me. I can live in the constant joy of knowing that he is never stopping in his giving. At that statement, his face fell, and he went away sad, for he had many possessions. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed when he said that, and he doubled down and said it again, and even used this extreme example of a camel going through the eye of a needle. And the whole point of it was, it is not impossible, but it is difficult. And the difficulty doesn't lie in how extreme you have to do it, in what extreme way you have to do it, that you have to literally sell everything. No, it's that whenever we get used to clinging to things, loosening our grip is very hard. Right? Death is something that none of us really look forward to all that much, but the one who looks forward to it the least, the one who is most terrified, the one who approaches it with the least amount of peace, the one least ready for it, is the one who has gotten in the habit of clinging to this earth for dear life. Whereas the one who can approach death as not the end, but the passage into life eternal, is the one who has consistently in every decision been thinking about heaven rather than just about earth. The person who has had things but had them in such a way that God had access to everything. The person who has known the freedom of saying all that I am and all that I have is God's, and he's lending it to me in his abundant generosity. They were exceedingly astonished and said among themselves, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for human beings it is impossible, but not for God. All things are possible for God. And that that last verse that I just Quoted, that's one that we know pretty well because we see it plastered on plenty of different things, right? Sometimes football players will write it on their cleats in hopes that it'll help them uh, to have faith in themselves and get a victory because God can help them in their football game. And I don't deny that. God can. He can help us in every single little detail of our lives, but ultimately, he has his sights set on something bigger. That's your eternal salvation. Do we have our sights set on that something bigger, on that something more? Because our hearts are crying out for it. That discontent that we feel is because that's where we long to be. Do we allow that to inform our everyday decisions, thoughts, actions, words? It is impossible for us to build our way up there. Our hearts desire something they're not capable of attaining on their own. And that's where it's so beautiful that God loves us enough to pick us up and to bring us to that place where we long to be. But in order for us to accept his helping hand, to be able to cling to it for dear life and let it lift us to heaven, we can't be clinging to this earth. And that there is the point. It's not, are you rich or are you poor? It's, are your riches in heaven or here? It's, is your hope bound to this world, or can it extend all the way to heaven? Then, as a final point, Peter chimes in. And I love it when Peter speaks. Very often he gets a bad rap, right? Because he says something and Jesus then rebukes him. He sometimes maybe puts his foot in his mouth. And you know what? I love him for it because he's saying what we're thinking. Afterwards, we get all high and mighty and say, Oh, Peter, how could you say that? This is the Prince of the Apostles. He just has the courage to say what you're thinking. And so it is right now. Peter began to say to him, We have given up everything and followed you. And that's the exact sentiment I think so many of us carry into the church day in and day out, week in and week out, is this thought of, God, I've already given up so much. Like, God, life is already so hard. And and I've tried. And then you say your promise, and I just don't feel it. I haven't seen it. Because Jesus responds to him, Amen, I say to you, there is no one who has given up house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the sake of the gospel who will not receive a hundred times more now in this present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. We hear that and we think, okay, that's great, but where is it? Like, I, I still have just the one house, and it, it, uh, it isn't even paid off. So, like, where, Lord, is the fulfillment of this promise? Is that for other people? Am I just not doing it right enough? And it's then that we realize, whose house is this? Whose house is this? God's house? Whose kid are you? Yeah, this is your house. Our Lady of Guadalupe, just a few blocks over, whose house is that? Yeah, that's your house too. The Cathedral Basilica in Santa Fe, whose house is that? Oh, that's your house. St. Peter's Basilica in the Vatican. All the other basilicas and cathedrals and beautiful churches all throughout the land. Whose are those? They're yours. When you were entered into this Catholic family, you gained so many homes. You can know anywhere in the world where you go and you see that shining red tabernacle lamp, that candle that says Jesus is here present, you are home. You can be in a foreign land where you know nothing, but you know the God of the house that you enter, and you're able to be at home. You can look around now and look at all these other people. You can see there your brothers and your sisters a wild and crazy family, scandalous and saintly at the same time. But yeah, these are your hundredfold brothers and sisters, the ones that have helped you in your faith, been spiritual mentors to you. They're your mothers and your fathers. The little ones that you know that it is your responsibility to help lead in the faith, those are your children. And so God has made good. By entering you into this Catholic family that extends all the way into heaven, he has given you a hundredfold of houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands. But those were not the only things that multiplied hundredfold when you became a Christian. What else did Jesus sneak in there? Do you remember from the list? said, mothers and children and lands with persecutions. And we wish he left that one out. We wish that it was just like, we're all part of this one big happy family and it's great. But entering into a family, you enter into that family drama. You get to benefit from the good reputation of the good brothers and sisters, but also the rotten reputation of the bad ones. You get to enter into not only belonging, but also conflict. And when you were signed with the cross at your baptism, the devil saw that as a target. And he has been targeting you ever since. And he will all the way until your dying breath. It should come as no surprise to us that he tempts us more than our brothers and sisters who are not trying to follow Christ. What kind of victory is it for him to tempt someone to sin who already doesn't know the Lord? And yet, if he could tempt us to sin, well, there's something worth fighting for. He might try to make it a scandal that we are less patient, less kind than our counterparts who don't know Jesus Christ. And so that's his game plan. And we get so discouraged, we think, you know what, I should just throw my hands up in the air and just, like, give up on this. But instead, we realize that as furious as our foe is against us, our Lord is infinitely more powerful. Our victory in this battle is just getting back up every time that we fall, because we know the way that it ends. It ends with the final thing Jesus says to us, eternal life in the age to come.